Good morning, everybody. My name is Andrea Petu. I'm the chair of the history of the Second World War, the subcommittee of the Hungarian Academy of Sciences. This is the podcast recorded at uh, CU Podcast uh, Studio. And uh, I'm extremely privileged to have uh, uh, Barbara Steltzmarks here, who is um, uh, working at the Boltzmann Institute in Austria. So why don't you introduce yourself to our uh, listeners? Yeah, good morning, everyone. Uh, thank you very much for inviting me. It's a great pleasure being here. Uh, thank you, to, uh, especially to Andrea Bedeau for the invitation. My name is uh, Barbara Stelzel-Marx. I'm the director of the Ludwig Boltzmann Institute for Research on War Consequences in, in Austria. Uh, we are based in, in Graz, uh, but also in, in Vienna and uh, in Raps, which is in Lower Austria. This institute has a very specific name. It actually somehow indicates that um, the war has a very important part in the Austrian history. So why did you focus on the post-war period and what kind of uh, work are you doing there? Yeah, the uh, Ludwig Boltzmann Institute is called uh, for research on consequences of war. So we have been working on the different kinds of consequences of conflicts and wars basically in the 20th century. Uh, there's a, a main focus on the Second World War and the Cold War, but we have also worked on, on the First uh, World War or the, the period between the First and the Second World War. We started out about 25 years ago and started basically uh, with the research on uh, Austrian POWs in the Soviet Union. So this was the time when the Soviet, later on the Russian archives, first became open to the public. And uh, Stefan Karner, who founded our institute in 1993, he was among the first or the first uh, Western historians who got access to the uh, Soviet archives who were that were still closed uh, to the public at that time. So the first focus was on the about 130,000 Austrian POWs uh, in the Soviet Union during the Second World War. And from uh, then onwards, we have focused on, on a whole variety of topics, uh, but have uh, collaborated very closely with the different uh, Russian archives and institutions. The Russian archives has this mythical image that it's closed and uh, they are unfriendly to researchers. But your experience actually proves the opposite because you have got a good working relation. So can you tell us the secret, how, how it happened that uh, you have got this good working relationship with the different Russian archives? Well, it's probably not a secret, but uh, a lot is based upon a good relationship and it's like in any area in life, if you know someone and if you are reliable, then you form a good partnership. And uh, this has been the case in basically in the Mo Moscow archives as well. So we started out uh, in these archives uh, with the POWs and then very big international research project focused on the Red Army in Austria. That's something that I coordinated uh, from 2000 to 2005. And uh, what we did was that we invited uh, Russian colleagues from the various archives and also from the Russian Academy of Sciences, uh, Professor uh, Alexander Aganovich Tubarian, and from the RGGU, which is the Russian State uh, University for the Humanities. Now there's Rector Bezbarodov and Vice Rector Olga Pavlenka to do uh, two volumes together. So we published one volume of documents documents from uh, former Soviet archives, but also from Austrian archives and from 
other countries as well. And we published a volume of essays uh, with Austrian and Russian and, and other colleagues. So this was a mutual project. And what is also important is uh, that we founded an, an Austro-Russian Commission of Historians. And this year uh, we will celebrate our 10th uh, anniversary. Uh, and the idea is to um, to do research on issues uh, that are interesting for Russian colleagues and for the Austrian colleagues as well. So on issues uh, that deal with Russia or the Soviet Union and Austria in the 20th, but also in the 19th uh, century. And we have just finished uh, a volume called the Austro-Russian History from the uh, well, in the last several decades, and uh, this is something that is also um, made for scholars, for students, and uh, the idea is to give a very compact, precise overview uh, of the main issues uh, of the histories of, of, of these two countries. And what is unique or quite unique is that each chapter is written by at least one Austrian and one Russian colleague together. You are also an author of an award-winning volume, which is um, Stalin's Soldiers in, in Austria. Uh, this is a very uh, thick volume available in German and also in English. And I wonder what was the most interesting finding you had? So what was the, uh, the aha moment when you said, oh, I haven't thought about this, that this is really a big finding? Yeah, the idea was to describe the Russian, the Soviet everyday life during occupation in Austria. So a lot was known and is known on uh, on the Austrian situation. And we had done research on various aspects like diplomatic issues, economic issues, military issues. So the most various uh, questions linked with the Soviet occupation of Austria. But what had not been uh, researched um, at was the situation of the Red Army soldiers in Austria. Uh, there were 400,000 uh, Red Army soldiers in 1945. Ten years later, still 40,000, which means a huge amount of Soviet soldiers in the eastern part of Austria during these 10 years. And what was so interesting for me was what did it mean uh, for a Soviet Red Army soldier to be based in this capitalist uh, country that had been liberated uh, by by the Red Army in 1945. And what, just to give you one example, uh, I found a document uh, where a, a Soviet officer said to his colleagues that Austria is so much better developed, that there is luxury, there are villas, there's good life, uh, good food and so on. Whereas in the uh, Soviet Union at home, uh, his family is basically almost starving. So he was sort of frustrated um, with this communist uh, system. And uh, what I found interesting is not only this cultural shock, but also the results because this private conversation I was told about to the NKVD and he was um, sent back uh, to the Soviet Union, was punished, lost his rights as a, in the military and also in the party. And his comrades, uh, still based in Austria, were told that they really needed to be careful and had to believe into the communist system and the communist issues and values. Mm -hmm. So this punishment uh, was interesting for me. 
right? So you haven't expected that the NKVD would be listening to people's private conversation and they will send back the uh, Russian officers if they are not enthusiastic enough to the Soviet regime? Well, now knowing uh, all this, of course, is something you might expect, but uh, at the time... Um, Nothing had been known about the situation, and so this was a new, uh, a new information. The other um, interesting aspect of your book and also your research is that you are looking at the children who were born with uh, Red Army soldiers, and I wonder what kind of um, ethical and moral considerations were there when you started this very important and uh, excellent research. Yeah, I came about this issue more or less by chance when I coordinated uh, the research project on the Red Army in Austria because uh, a Viennese woman contacted me and wanted to give an interview and she told me that her father was a Red Army soldier. She was born in St. Pölten, just outside of Vienna, in uh, April 1946 and uh, had been looking for her traces for many, many years and uh, she asked me to help her looking for her traces. And then I thought, well, this is so obvious, basically, that there were 400,000 uh, Red Army soldiers. And, of course, all the, the cases of rape were, were known in Austria. But you had this whole variety. Rape on the one hand side, uh, short uh, sort of affairs, liaisons, uh, prostitution, and uh, the big love uh, of your life. So very romantic relationships as well. And it's quite clear uh, that as a result of all these uh, different kinds of relationships, children were born. So in all four zones of occupation, I think that about 30,000 children of occupation were born. And about half of them um, have a, at least half of them have a, a Soviet soldier as a father. Um, what is typical uh, for this group or for these children of war, children of occupation, is that they grew up as a fatherless uh, generation because the Red Army soldiers were sent back to the Soviet Union. Uh, the relationships to Austrian women were not allowed uh, because of political and ideological considerations. So most of them probably did not see the child even if it was born as a result of a love affair, because they were not able to stay in Austria and they were not allowed to, to get married um, and, and take uh, the Austrian uh, woman, the, the wife, uh, with them. So this is a different to the situation in the Western zones uh, of occupation. And uh, many of them have been looking for, for their traces uh, because this is just a question uh, of identity and it's a, a blind spot uh, in the biographies of the persons concerned. And when I started doing this research, um, particularly on the Soviet children of occupation, no research had been done. And now we have had conferences, uh, the media in Austria and also Germany and other countries have broadcasted quite a lot uh, uh, there are networks uh, among the children of occupation. Um, I'm director of research of a big uh, international Horizon 2020 research project called uh, Children of War in the 20th Century. And among uh, these PhD programs, there are 15 PhD programs throughout Europe. Uh, there are three, two to three um, PhD 
programs uh, that um, focus on the situation of children of occupation in Germany and Austria after the Second World War. That means a lot has been done, uh, a lot has been achieved in, in the last uh, couple of years, a lot has been published, but still there are gaps and particularly uh, many of the children concerned are still looking for their fathers or their relatives in the former Soviet Union. So let's say all these uh, Red Army soldiers were living in um, in Austria. How can one imagine? They, were they living in garrisons or they were living in um, uh, occupied apartments? So what was the setup? Yeah, basically all that you have mentioned. Uh, when they first arrived uh, in 1945, many were uh, um, many stayed in private homes. Um, but the commander uh, tried to separate uh, the soldiers as quickly as possible, and then uh, they were in, in garnisons. How did they meet with the uh, local women? Because uh, uh, the Red Army soldiers uh, had a very bad reputation by the time they arrived to Austria, and that they are basically looting and they are drunk and they are raping. So what kind of motivations were there to meet uh, with these um, soldiers with dubious reputation? Uh, this bad reputation was there uh, already before the first uh, Red Army soldier touched Austrian territory, which was also linked to the Nazi propaganda uh, against the Slavic, so-called Untermensch, the, the subhuman. And of course, there were all these side effects of, of the liberation that you mentioned, like looting and, and raping and, and plundering and so on. But um, on the other side, of course, there were very cultivated officers and, uh, well, I only know a couple of stories uh, that have been told to me, for example, through work, Austrian women worked uh, for the Red Army in, in the kitchen, peeling potatoes or whatever, uh, just by chance, like uh, this one woman, Eleonora Dupuis, whom I mentioned, she told me that her mother was in the garden um, and suddenly these Red Army soldiers walked by and asked her whether she was able to mend uh, his uniform. And so they started talking and he came again and again and suddenly they fell in love. Um, another lady told me that her mother met her Soviet father uh, when going to the theater or dancing. An ordinary life uh, after war. And maybe there was this idea to get on with life uh, after all these uh, terrible things that had happened on both sides of the war. Many told us it was spring, it was uh, freedom, peace and so on. And there were these uh, these soldiers. Who, uh, and of course, another point is that there was a lack of Austrian men as well. Many had been killed during the war, many were in captivity or had lost their lives in concentration camps and so on. And uh, there was the situation that the occupation soldiers from all four occupation powers in Austria, they were the victors. And that might have been attractive for many young women as well. Mm -hmm. Right. And how many marriages had been made. I mean, of course, the, the intimate relationship is one thing, but the other is a, a kind of real marriage contract. So was this a kind of normal procedure to have this marriage contract signed? Uh, this again depends on uh, on the nationality of the occupation soldier. 
like uh, in the in the French and uh, American and British zone of occupation from 1946 onwards, marriages were were legal, and there were war brides. These women were called war brides who emigrated to these different countries. In the Soviet zone of occupation, marriages were a very very rare uh, occasion. I, I only know of one woman who actually got married to the commander of a little city and she emigrated to the Ukraine um, because these marriages were not really allowed. This is the difference between the Soviet zones and the Western zones of mm -hmm. occupation. Some Red Army soldiers tr tried to desert and uh, deserted to the to Western countries and took the Austrian women with them, like to France and so on. Uh, but that, again, is a different situation. Mm -hmm. So the, the Soviet case uh, is quite unique, I'd say. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a unique case and you are using unique uh, methods to analyze it. So this Kronen uh, Zeitung advertisement, which was uh, inviting the relatives of Red Army soldiers to announce themselves and to be a part of this family unification. How can you assess the historical importance of using new types of research methods in this uh, particular field? Uh, do you mean the field of the children of liberation, yeah. children of occupation? Yeah. Of course, there are not very many written sources because this is a topic that was not written down so much in, in the sources, especially in the, in the Soviet sources. I think oral history interviews are very important, ego documents, um, also documents from Austrian archives uh, dealing uh, with the, this particular situation of the children. Uh, because they, their mothers were not married in, in most cases. And there were, there was the so-called Fürsorge who took care of illegitimate, uh, children. And the media, uh, helped in some cases to reunite, uh, families in both countries, in Austria and also in the, in like Russia and, and or the Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Because there was this Zdiminia uh, yeah. program. So I find that really interesting. So you might want to talk a little bit about this, that uh, starting with the uh, title of the... Yeah, Zdiminia means, means uh, wait for me in Russian. It's an extremely popular TV program. And uh, the idea of the program is to help uh, someone find uh, a relative or someone uh, had lost a long time ago. And in some cases, uh, it has been possible to find the relatives in Russia, or in one case, uh, the other way around, there was the, the former Red Army soldier who knew that his son uh, had been born in Baden, well, not far from Vienna after the war, uh, but he had not been able to see him. And now in, in his 80s, he wanted to see his son. And uh, the program asked me to help them look uh, for the traces. And yeah, we succeeded. Researching um, the Red Army occupation that requires new methods and new uh, sources because there are very little written material which remained and they are also not always accessible in the Russian archives. So what was your personal strategy when you were uh, doing this research? How to handle this particular methodological and uh, and theoretical dilemma? Yeah, um, well, we were able to get access to fascinating um, documents from the various archives uh, in Moscow party archives of the KGB, FSB, army archives that are in Patolsk, south of Moscow. Yeah, so economic archives and so on. 
What I find interesting for the future is the use of new methods uh, such as uh, digitalization. And I think that's something uh, that also research institutes like um, my institute on research on consequences of war will have to, to deal with uh, because uh, that's sort of the, the future also for passing on information. And what kind of um, outreach activity do you have? So how do you uh, define the mission of the of the Boltzmann Institute? Because uh, nowadays there is this debate about the responsibility and the usefulness of science as such. And especially in the case of the Second World War and the post-Second World War, you see that the historian as a privileged narrator of what has happened is basically questioned by several actors who believe that their stories are the true stories. So uh, how do you deal with this kind of popular turn in, in historiography? And also how do you try to influence the historical narrative about the post-Second World War in, in Austria? I think three areas are very important in this context. One is research. So you really need to go into the archives. You need to make interviews and need to analyze, collect and analyze and make the synthesis. The other area is dissemination. I believe it's, it's uh, very important to pass on the results of the research to colleagues, to academia, but also to the public. We do this via publications, via conferences, via exhibitions, with the help of media and so on. And uh, the third area is service. So if there are people like, for example, uh, Julian Born of War, Uh, who are looking for their traces and we can provide necessary information. This is something we do. This is a kind of humanitarian aspect uh, to our research. Uh, and what is your new research project now? So what kind of um, new research project grew out from this very interesting uh, project? Well, we have a whole variety uh, of different research projects, but I, I'd like to mention one because that might be interesting, to, particularly to Hungarian colleagues. In November this year, we'll open an exhibition on a camp in, in Graz. It's called Camp uh, Liebenau. And uh, this is important uh, because it was one uh, station on the death march of Hungarian Jews Uh, in April 1945, who were marched from the Austro-Hungarian border via Camp Liebenau and, and other cities, of course, to the concentration camp Mauthausen, uh, which means that also Graz became one part of these atrocities uh, that happened uh, at the end of the war because at least uh, 30 Hungarian Jews were killed and, and buried in this camp. So what kind of interventions can you mention as far as the memory politics is concerned? Because, of course, Austria has got also this very troubled and complex history during the Second World War. So what kind of present memory debates can you mention where your institute is actually, you know, putting certain emphasis on professionalism, on facts, on research and on academic work? Yeah, well, in Austria, as you mentioned, the... Sort of the, the memory of the Second World War was was biased for many years, uh, relying on the uh, Moscow Declaration from 1943. We focused on our role as uh, Hitler's first victim. And after the wartime debate, this has changed and uh, a lot of research has been done on the role of Austria and Austrians as perpetrators and as bystanders during the Second World War. 
and think there are still many gaps and there's still much more research to be done, particularly in the context of memorizing and remembering the Second World War in Austria as well. Thank you very much. This has been a pleasure talking to you. So this was the podcast of the Subcommission of the History of the Second World War of the Hungarian Academy of Sciences. My guest was Barbara Steltz-Marx from the Boltzmann Institute, and I'm Andrea Petter. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you. you.